Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. In this episode, we'll finish the novella, The Hour of Trust. Yeah, it's going to be a lot to cover, so let's just get right into it. Last time we left off with the, the plot of the story being set up, our point of view characters are the employees of an American corporation who are throwing a party at a hotel in Portugal. But the action of the story is going to take place in some sort of military operation against dissidents or revolutionaries or maybe space aliens whom the characters call the Harrys. And this operation is being conducted by the military, but it's being planned with the heavy influence of and perhaps even real direct control of American corporations. Well, this section begins with Lewis and Peters concluding their conversation with Hasdorf about how many airplanes they can contribute to this military operation. And when they hang up, Lewis comments on the call to Peters. We learn here that Lewis went to college with Hasdorf. They were friends and even were both members of the dance committee, but they took jobs with different companies. And so they lost touch with each other. Peters and Lewis both think of this world in terms of companies. That's the the important thing here, right? Which one do you work for and which other companies are your customers? And it's important to note here that they think of the Air Force, the United States military, as being one of those other companies. It's nothing other than a customer as far as they're concerned. I think another thing to point out here is that Wolf is just pointing to this sort of old boys network that is in operation between these corporations, that Lewis should get special treatment and should be able to kind of wink and scam this other guy because they used to know each other 20 years ago. And as you said, they identify mainly as being parts of a corporation, not being human people with identities that shift and change and and grow over time, that the most important thing about their relationship is that they once knew each other and that now they can benefit from that relationship. Right. And he even describes their friendship together back in college as being about being a part of the same corporation there, as being part of the dance committee, as being decision makers for some constituent part of the the school. Right. It's never about we had interest in common. We're used to do things together. It's no, we were on the same committee. We sat in the same meetings sometimes. That's all these people know of friendship, it seems. Well, it's been teased for approximately 10 pages now, but we come at last, finally, to the party in the hotel. Cleo Morris is passing out cocktails, and people are engaged in what Wolf describes as subdued, content-free conversations. I think we've all been to this party and, and wish we had those hours back. I get some real bitterness by the way that Wolf is describing Peter's read on the scene that unfolds before him as people enter. As you said, Glenn, yeah, we've been to parties where we've seen this, quote, tableau of elaborate casualness and subdued content-free speech. Yes, I think we've all felt that, but this is a really caustic description of a shallow party if I've ever read one. Oh, it's brilliant. It's probably my favorite of these. You know, we get a lot of these in in literature. It turns out writers don't like going to parties with people like this. (laughs) Right. Well, Peters ends up in a conversation with some of the guests, and he doesn't know who any of them are, but they're clearly not Americans. And we learned some interesting details here. First, finally, it's confirmed that we are dealing with a civil war in America. It's not actually a space invasion, as I teased last time. And Peters thinks of the other side of the war as the radicals. And I I think at this point, we can say that the terms radicals and Harry's indicate that we're talking about the young counterculture of the 1960s and 1970s, which is really just to say hippies, right? Men who have grown out their hair and have grown out their beards and, and so on. And we're called 
Harrys as a derogatory term. And we also learn here that these Harrys or radicals have largely won the war, such as there actually even really is a war. There is very little left of the American government, and this operation is part of a campaign for the American government and all of these corporations to regain control from the counterculture movement. And we learn as well that the United Services Corporation is throwing this party for the business elite of Europe so that they can watch as the American military and American corporations conquer or you know, liberate, if you prefer, but capture right the city of Detroit. And they're going to watch this by means of the, the vid link. And this matters because they need investments and no one is going to invest in the losing side. So this is all theater in order to gain cash. We see in this section this renewed interest in the nationality of these businessmen. Peters, for instance, meets this man who he can't guess the nationality of, and he uses the Portuguese formal senhor to reference him, and this guy's name is Salamos. And Salamos is only interested in the American conflict here because he thinks it will produce great art. And that's already kind of a disgusting sentiment to have. But what's even worse is that Peters is now remembering the Italian businessman who's supposed to be here who was interested in art and doesn't think Salamos is that man. He may be, he may not be, but the fact that there are enough of these sorts of people here who might only be watching this unfold so they can reap the benefit years down the road is kind of a, a kind of a troubling sentiment. This detachment from the real struggle of this revolution that is taking place can only be spoken from a place where you consume without worry or a need to labor. I really don't like Salamos. He has a lot to say in this story and maybe he's not an altogether bad character, but this immediate interaction with him makes me not like him at all. As you said, Glad, we're really on the verge of the real action of the story here. And these businessmen are gathered together in order to be sold some sort of product or really some sort of assurance that American business is going well because the ability for corporations to field their private armies against the revolutionaries, that this is going to be a, a show, as you say, a theater, that the American corporations are really in control and that their private armies can take back the center holds of manufacturing in the country. And it's also important that America gets their international credit rating back and will be able to continue to produce and manufacture goods because now if they win this battle, they'll be backed by the confidence of global bankers and creditors and investor capital, which was also kind of a new thing that was beginning to take place in the 1970s in business. And in this section, we also encounter the second mention of the goal of business being the maximal return on invested capital. So Wolf is really caught up in these changes in the American business landscape uh, as he's writing the story. This is a real dialogue-heavy part of the story. I guess maybe the whole story is pretty dialogue-heavy, and it's all quintessential, characteristic wolf dialogue with conversations overlapping each other. And really, this party chatter is all meant to disgust us, right? What we are getting here is wealthy people getting ready to watch a war on TV, and, and they're talking about it as if it's a sporting event with no thought at all about soldiers, about people who are actually going to have weapons in their hand and be using them to kill people and exposing themselves to that same type of violence. None of that is on anyone's mind here, even though that's exactly what they have orchestrated. Well, finally, the TV comes on and at last we see General Verdun, who is in charge of this operation. And Wolf describes him awesomely. So I just want to read what he says. 
General Verdun has the face of a frightened middle management man whose career has topped out in his 40s, driving his subordinates from habit and his fear of his many-faced, ever-shifting superiors. What a description, right? This is every office job ever. And just the animosity about that type of life and the real just soul crushingness of it is just right there in this description of what this guy looks like. It's awesome. It reinforces what we already suspect that the United Services is here to get money, to borrow money from these other investors in order to crush the Harrys and the revolutionaries who, on their part, have rejected the rampant corporatism that is taking over the government and really rebelled against this stultified American productivity that has made America weak in the worldview and this this kind of corporate malaise that is seeping its way into the story and the description we get of these people who fly desks for a living is just all part of this picture of an America that is totally run by corporations, an America whose corporations have also abandoned any sort of responsibility to other people and only are trying to maximize profits. And we also learn here that Peters is basically only here to make sure that the party goes well. Yeah, I think that's what executive assistant means, right? It's it's not an assistant who's an executive. It's the assistant to the executive. Right. And I think that this description of Verdun also gives us the payoff to the epigram from Proust that opens the story and the, you know, the themes that we're able to derive from it. We're going to learn a little bit about the forces that are fighting here. And they're on both sides, these sort of mongrel forces. They're made up of multiple smaller units that have all suffered losses. And this Verdun, the, the leader of the forces, answers to no one other than shareholders, basically. He doesn't even really answer to the government. He's this world's version of a, of a CEO in some sense. And we'll learn more about him, that he doesn't really have experience soldiering. And this runs parallel to what we learned earlier, that most of the managers in this world have no experience in performing the labor uh, that produces the product that their profits rely on. Right. And the general is not even going to actually address this party in Europe, though he's on the vid link right now. He's got a colonel who's supposed to do this. He's got like his own executive assistant who's going to do this. But this colonel's not actually returned to camp yet, which does not seem to be a good indication. So some major has to do this instead. And because the major has no idea what the colonel was supposed to say. So this is all just kind of a charade, but well, really it's a farce, right, of the stupidity of upper management. And the guests have a lot of questions. And of course, this is a great narrative technique that lets Wolf tell us some more about this situation. There really is, as you say, Brandon, no American government anymore. There's no more taxes, and therefore there's no public funds with which to pay soldiers. But this is where the corporations have stepped in. They're bankrolling this last attempt to liberate America from the counterculture, anti-corporate, anti-consumerist movement that has taken control of the country. But it also becomes clear here that the corporations are now really in charge of this whole situation, that there is a fully functioning and just open plutocracy, though Lewis, I guess, maybe does still want to obscure that fact from the European industrialists in the room. But it's clear that all of the Americans are aware that this is what has happened, that the corporations are completely in charge. Well, now it is time to watch this war on TV. Detroit is in ruins. There's been heavy fighting here not that long ago, and the highway is dotted with the carcasses of burned out cars and building windows are sandbagged. And there's even an apartment building on fire in the background of the video. And this is all really quite harrowing to read. And there are two units that are converging on Detroit and the, the fighting is frantic and the, the vid link operator on the front lines is 
killed right away at the start of this action. And as a result of this, the party guests reconnect with General Verdun, who is far away from the fighting and just sitting at a desk. And this is where that bit of Proust from the beginning comes back, right? As you've, you've pointed out, Brandon, uh, Peters asks Verdun to talk about the composition of Force Wolverine. And this is where Verdun explains that it's been cobbled together from the remnants of other units. Of course, right at the top of the story, Proust has told us this is never a good sign. And it obviously isn't. It's really interesting here that Wolf is showing us that Peters, who's our point of view character, is perhaps losing confidence that he's on the winning side of this civil war. One of the guests even asks him if they will win this battle. This is Solomos, who you, you brought up earlier. And Peter says that they, they have to. And when he realizes that this sounds desperate, he tries to cover that up because, of course, the whole point of this party is that it's a sales pitch to these European companies, to people like Solomos. So he has to spin that. He has to get back into that mode. And he ends up making a pretty big speech about how they've used corporate business calculations to decide that this attack on Detroit was a good idea. Solomos congratulates Peters on making a pretty good speech, but he admits that he is skeptical because the counterculture has way more people than the corporate units do. And on top of that, he doesn't really buy Peters's analysis because it's all just salesmanship. Peters does not deny this. He says that in corporate business, it doesn't really matter if you have the best product so long as it isn't a really bad product, that what matters is the marketing, and that's what they're good at. Yeah, I really question this analogy between urban warfare and being a good salesman. I I hear it a lot (laughs) in my life. I'm not really sure how far back businessmen and salesmen have been using this kind of war analogy in general. You know, they're talking about war and business are the same thing. I've personally heard it for a long time, especially when it comes to marketing. And I, I have to say that I'm always distressed when I hear people compare themselves to being in war when they're just out selling vacuums or any kind of product. <laughs> it's really not the same thing. And I I think that this type of language reveals this natural suspicion held by salespeople or human beings in general, and anybody in, in, involved in, in capitalism that Wolf is pointing out here. You know, it's not simply the case, as we're taught, the f- fundamentals of capitalism uh, reveal to us, that the best good or service will win over others in a free market. The game is kind of rigged by those who have enough money to convince other people that their product is better. Advertising and marketing are a big part of what makes a product sell. You know, the the desire for a product first has to be implanted in you for you to even want to purchase it. And in this way, this whole war exercise is revealed to be merely a marketing ploy to generate more capital investment rather than really produce any sort of meaningful or viable product. And United Services just doesn't believe that they can lose. And all of Peter's speech here really comes off sounding like hubris, the same way anybody who talks about going to war with another company to me just sounds like they don't know what they're talking about and they just like conflict instead of just selling a product. And there's a great line in this conversation where Peters says, yeah, we do spend a lot of money on R&D, but that's not because we're actually trying to make a good product. It's so that the salespeople will feel that maybe there is a little bit of truth to what they're saying, and it will it will motivate them somehow. So even the R&D is really just marketing to the people who are going to be doing the, the selling within the same organization. So yeah, it's all just smoke and mirrors. And these are not the sort of people who should be running a combat operation, right? No, there's real lives at stake, you know, and these people aren't necessarily the best 
trained. They're not even a paid army. They're they're really just people who are hoping to benefit if their side wins uh, because this new capital injection is going to make sure their their paychecks are getting paid. It's it's kind of a nightmare situation. And I think Wolf aptly describes the sort of landscape of venture capital that a lot of economics and business are caught up in in our current time. And we're about to learn that the conflict that's happening here really is a conflict of cultures about what capitalism is or, or really how people should be making their livings, I suppose. We're going to learn a, a number of things during this phase of the party because, you know, Wolf always has at least three conversations happening simultaneously. And so we learned that the counterculture movement that has taken control of the U.S. is opposed to free enterprise, at least from the perspective of these partygoers. And that's part of the culture to which they are counter, right, is corporatism like this. But we also learned that General Verdun has no combat experiences himself, as you said earlier, Brandon. And he just says that that's not important because as they learned in Vietnam, what matters is organization and fire support. If you can blow up enough jungle, you can kill anybody. This story coming out while the Vietnam War is still going on, right? This is a punch to the gut here. This is Wolf coming out you know, with all cylinders at work here, letting us know that this guy and everyone who's with them is an awful person and they're not the good guys. Yeah, I'm going to dig into that in just a few minutes when we get this explicit, iconic imagery from protesting the Vietnam War that Wolf leans heavily into in this next section of the story. Right. There's a, a technical malfunction, and this interrupts their conversation with the general. And this was even after their connection with the battle itself had been interrupted. So there's several different malfunctions happening here. And eventually, the party is connected to Detroit again. But what they get connected to isn't the military-industrial complex signal that they want to be connected to. It's the counterculture signal, where Free Michigan 5 is offering uninterrupted battle coverage, music, and macrobiotic diet tips except when they're interrupted. It's a pretty great tagline. I don't know. We might need to use that for our, our next opening episode. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun stuff that goes on when we see the people on the ground, the people who are staking their lives on the outcome of this battle in a way that's very personal instead of being just about profiteering. Right. The host of Free Michigan 5 is a, a young man who has hieroglyphs painted on his forehead and who calls the military industrial forces pigs. This is all straight out of the, the protesting of Vietnam as well. And this station is also broadcasting the battle on TV and it's interviewing combatants and such. So we see both sides kind of engaged in this same behavior. But in this case, though, the host is interviewing volunteers who he says are donating their bodies to peace. And that's peace with a, a capital P. It's a proper noun in this context. And one of them is going to explode in a few paragraphs, but it is not clear that these are suicide bombers so much as people who are volunteering to stand in front of soldiers and ask them to stop fighting. And we can think of the iconic photos of protesters handing flowers to soldiers and police officers during this period. And there, there are a number of iconic protest images that Wolf is using here, as you said earlier, Brandon. There are six of these volunteers, but only two of them are interested in being interviewed. And the, the first is a young man who is stoned, he's high, uh, and perhaps doesn't have a clearly articulated motivation for giving up his life for this cause. He says that he's doing this because he wants to turn things around. And I'm just going to quote directly what Wolf says here. Like everybody all the time only does it for himself or something he sees being part of him, only bigger, uh, an empire, a church like that. Uh, I'm doing it for ants to set us loose is what he says. And the host asks this young man if he believes in life after death and he doesn't. 
He says that life after death wouldn't be death. Death, by definition, has to mean that there is no more. It's just the big dark, he says. And this prompts one of his comrades to speak. This is a young woman, and she disagrees with his definition of death. She says, if death is nothing, why have another name for it? The young man responds to this by accusing her of nominalism, though Wolf tells us that after he had said it, he seemed sorry that he had spoken, which I thought was a pretty funny touch. Yeah, nominalism or semantics or something like that, that I think Wolf really has something on his mind when he's having these characters have this conversation, uh, which we will get into in the discussion. But I really love this bit of metaphysics from the Harrys. I think it's a lot of fun. But I'm really interested in the in the goal that these revolutionaries are willing to die for. What is bringing all of these people together from somebody who believes that their death will make a better world for people who maybe come after them, who will allow for more freedom or something like that to somebody who believes that it's a it's a maybe they're a martyr in some sense because there is peace in this capital p sense that can be achieved by their death and i think though these people all have different views on what they will receive or gain by fighting this corporatism and these institutions it's clear to me i think that wolf is writing here about what he's also talked about as being his highest ideal which is freedom which is people being free. And I think that this scene shows us that many citizens have reached a point where they would rather die than continue on with the charade that they have more freedom in their life now that the social order has shifted to these corporations running everything where they're basically corporate serfs. It's a it's a great conversation. And it, it really points to, again, Wolf valuing maybe above all, that while we're on this earth, freedom for one another and freedom for ourselves is one of the highest values that can unite us. And we get religious motivations here among the the revolutionaries, among the Harrys. This young woman who has taken up this young man's answer about life after death, she does actually believe in life after death, though she says it's not the continued existence of her personality. But she says that she knows that something about her will continue. And she says that she's not really killing herself. She's just going to run at the enemy. But whether she dies or not is up to them. And so they're going to be her judges, just as Pontius Pilate was the judge of her Lord, right? So this is a Christian woman whose religion is at the core of her motive for being a revolutionary and also for giving up her life. And so I think martyrdom, as you just brought up, and I think that is the right way to be thinking about this. So at this point, these six people rush towards the enemy and the host of this broadcast comments about the demography and the logistics of what they're doing. He says they get all types, truth seekers, Jesus freaks, activists, and even pacifists. It's totally voluntary, and you can change your mind at any time. Nothing is final, right up until the bullets, he says. But this is also a sales pitch of sorts, and so he lets his audience know that they can sign up at most Buddhist and Christian spiritual centers, and also at the Temple of Kali off the Edsel Ford Expressway. And there's also a sign-up stand in the basement of what used to be a department store. There's some great juxtapositions going on here. And Glenn, as you teased, some some of these people are going to blow up in some way. And it's not clear to me whether this sort of signing up to donate your body to peace is really what's going on here. I don't know if that these people are going to be walking towards the soldiers in a kind of peaceful protest manner, and its soldiers actually do decide to kill them or not, or whether there's somebody else with their finger on the button that is 
uh, manipulating events on the other side as well. That's going to be a big question when we get to the end of the story. Yeah, it's certainly a very interesting question. And this is, I think, really quite confusing on the first read through the, the story. And so it will be fun to have that conversation and try to see if we can tease out what is actually happening here with these exploding bodies. But uh, right now we're, we're back at the party in Portugal where these people are just continuing to watch this broadcast. Peters at this point feels like he might be sick, but nonetheless, Treadgold's prostitutes continue to offer their guests martinis and canapes. And in fact, Peters drains a martini here because he really needs the, the alcohol. He's struggling to want to be coherent really in this party at this point. And when Peters finally looks back at the TV screen, three of the peace volunteers are already gone, and he has to watch the violent death of the the young man who had just been interviewed, the young man who was stoned and high and maybe didn't have a clearly thought-out understanding of the afterlife. This young man strips naked, and he walks towards the soldiers saying, Peace, peace, don't shoot, look at us. But... The soldiers do shoot, and the camera shows him writhing on the dusty pavement before it focuses on the young woman who was also interviewed here. There are four soldiers surrounding her, and one of them puts his arms around her and kisses her, but then another soldier gets in between them, and he tears away this woman's shirt so that she's naked. And as soon as he does this, she explodes in a sheet of flame that embraces them all. And this is pretty horrifying, but there's still more horror to come in this scene. There is also a bald man among these peace volunteers, and he recites the Lord's Prayer and walks towards the soldiers. And as he approaches a combat car, he starts reciting baseball anecdotes to the soldiers and then finishes his monologue by saying to the soldiers, don't you guys care about anything? And the crew just stares at him, but an officer draws his pistol and fires, and he actually misses the bald man, but the bald man explodes like a bomb, just like the young woman did. I found this section of the story to be really, really chilling, and it called to my mind the Kent State Massacre, which took place in May of 1970. You know, the students at that university campus were protesting the expansion of the Vietnam War into Cambodia, and National Guardsmen who were on campus during this protest opened fire and killed four and wounded nine others. And it goes in line with all of this uh, iconic Vietnam War protest imagery, where ostensibly the student side is peacefully protesting and things have gotten out of hand here. Of course, this is actually a war zone. So there's something different going on here. But this is the imagery that Wolf is playing with. And I think we'll have to talk in our discussion about this girl exploding in a, in a sheet of flame because it's not the last time as we'll see happen in this story. Of course, the bald man also explodes like a bomb. But this this imagery of going up in flame as opposed to exploding is maybe a form of spontaneous combustion, but it calls to mind the imagery of self-immolation, which is also an image associated with protests against the Vietnam War between the late 1960s and early 1970s. It's a very complicated image in this story, but Wolf is clearly drawing on this protest imagery of the Vietnam War to talk about these revolutionaries. And it's so clear that this matters so much to Wolf. And I think this is a, a big reason why this story wound up in The Best Of, which was his self-curated collection, that this was a story that I think from his perspective was the most 
immediately, most directly relevant to the world he was living in. And this is where he got all of his feelings, or at least many of his feelings about the horror that people get to watch on their TVs, just like the people are doing at this party. He got to to express that here in this story. And we can see him still almost 50 years on feeling that right at the moment that he is collecting that story into his own personal best of. Well, now that all of these peace volunteers are dead, the the host of Free Michigan 5 switches the coverage to the Zen Banzai charge over on the west side of Detroit. And here we see a horde of ragged people with uh, red cloths around their heads and waists. And some of these people have firearms, but most of them are armed with homemade spears and gasoline bombs. And many of these people die, but the survivors overwhelm the military industrial soldiers here. And this scene closes out with the the really gruesome image of a soldier's head held aloft on one of these homemade spears. At this point, General Verdun's forces regain control of the signal, and so he now appears again on the screen at the party, and he's going to address the people there. And, And it's a really glaring juxtaposition because... These people who are indeed really just drinking martinis at a party have just witnessed these acts of gruesome violence, just chilling scenes, and much of it against unarmed people, while it's clear that General Verdun, who is actually supposed to be a soldier, has just been sitting at a desk waiting for his communications people to reconnect the signal and maybe doesn't even know anything at all about what's happening on the the battlefield. This is glaring and it's frankly disturbing. But this is the last that we're going to get of the the general, really, or of the battle, because Wolf now shifts his focus to conversations at the the party in Portugal. Solomos is still hanging around Peters, and he's been affected by what they've all seen on camera. And it's pretty clear to him that the military industrial forces shouldn't be attacking. They shouldn't be on the offense. They've lost most of the country and should be defending what little they have left. Solomos's assessment of the situation is that they have survived thus far only because the counterculture forces don't know how to fight. But as far as he can tell, they are learning. Conversely, the military soldiers don't really know how to fight either, but they're not learning. And perhaps really the most damning assessment of all, and these lines are really pointed at us in the real world, right? The most damning assessment of all is that after the Second World War and the Korean War, Americans allowed their army to become nothing more than a consumer of industrial production. It's it's not a real fighting force. All it is is another corporation. It's just another type of company that's wrapped up in the way that capitalism works. Yeah, I get the sense that Wolf has read War is a Racket by <laughs> General Smedley Butler here. This is this is kind of right out of that that sense of real bitterness and outrage of, you know, both of us have been soldiers, Gene Wolfe was a soldier, of realizing that the force you're serving is really a part of a much larger economic driver of uh, the the nation you care about. And Wolf has seen a lot more combat, I think, than both of us. And I think that that carries through. There's a lot more outrage at this continual, never-ending war even this crazy announcement from Nixon in 1970 to expand the war into Cambodia, when it's clear to everybody who's watching the war, again, the first time they're reporting the number of soldiers that are being killed every night and what's going on, that it's clear that it's not going well for America. And what we need is to double down and regroup and attack. And this is really a Vietnam protest story. And it's uh, it's it's just, it's it's a very complex story story, I think, emotionally as a reader. 
And I think it's interesting that Wolf emphasizes or includes the Korean War here. For him, it's almost like that was the last good war before the military industrial complex gets really ramped up. And I guess historically speaking, that's true, though it's not much before that really ramps up very, very quickly and is in full sway by the time we get to the the telling of this story. Well, Treadgold now arrives at the party and he is trying to get people to make bets about which side is going to win this American Civil War. Peters recalls that Treadgold ultimately is employed by an American record company, an American music company, and he remembers watching their records spin around the record player in his grandmother's house in Palmerton, Pennsylvania. And I just want to point out here that we've now got the words Peter and Palmer together here in this story. And this certainly calls me back to The Changeling, which is also a story about soldiers. It's Wolf's story about coming home from the Korean War. So I'm sure that this is a connection we'll talk about in the discussion. But what matters here is that Peters is thinking about a mundane life, a life that really may be lost to him now. And this prompts him to ask Treadgold what it's like in England right now. And Treadgold, matter-of-factly, says that England is only 15 years behind America, which is to say that he believes this sort of uprising against corporations and the military-industrial complex is going to happen in the UK in just 15 years. Yeah, Treadgold here is just a pure profiteer. His behavior is absolutely disgusting. He's making—I mean, I think he's a pure example of this sort of unscrupulous business person who will do anything to advance his own financial interests. As you said, Glenn, he's making bets on the outcome of the battle and betting against the people who have employed him as the American company. And I mean, Treadgold is really just a ruthless pimp whose only air of legitimacy in this story comes from his ability to talk about profits and losses. And this, again, this conversation between Treadgold and Peters is really, really important to the story. I don't know how much we're going to be able to dig deep into it in the discussion, but if any of our listeners have not read this story, I think these two conversations between Treadgold and Peters that really bind the story together are crucial to Wolf's own maybe opinions about what is happening with business and government and corporate policies and the lax policies that government ultimately has strapped business with. And, you know, when Treadgold says that England is only maybe 15 years behind, it's because England here, maybe nobly, maybe not, has social policies and programs in place that actually are for its citizens. And America has never done this. And Wolf is predicting this. And it's actually kind of been the case. Yeah. And Peters points out here that 15 years seems like it should be enough time to make changes to prevent this type of uprising, because why would you want this? But Treadgold, who I I think is probably best described as chaotic neutral in a room full of lawful neutral businessmen, uh, Treadgold just points out that the Americans also could have made these changes. And he gives a a bit of a, a speech here. And as you say, this is really important. He says, you could have changed things yourself, right? America could have made these changes as well. He says, all your big corporations owning everything and running everyone, everything decided by the economic test when it was 40 or more years out of date. One firm's economy is only good because of prices set by another to encourage or discourage something else altogether. And your chemical works ruining your fishing, turning the sea into a dustbin, then selling their chemical foods. Why didn't you change things yourselves? He asks, right? And and this is Wolf asking us, the audience, why we are not actively right now changing things. Yeah, Wolf is here looking at 
what the conclusion of, of such a system of lax governmental policies and slaps on the wrists for corporations who are destroying uh, natural resources would inevitably look like. And also sort of really strongly coming after his readers and saying nobody is doing anything to stop it. Nobody will, basically until it's too late and you have to put your life on the line. And we get a speech at the end of the story about maybe what Wolf thinks good business governance and business practices are in relationship to a government. But we'll, we'll see how that turns out for the person giving the speech. Right. And, and Peters recalls his time in grade school here. So that would be the late 70s up until about 1980, I guess. And he describes this as a period when everybody was talking about changing this system of consumerism and corporate manorialism or, or serfdom, as you called it earlier, Brandon, but nothing was ever done. And the same thing is happening in Britain. But Treadgold observes that the very people everyone is trying to get to change things are the ones who do well for themselves in this system. And he points out that it's a little dumb to think that people are going to make new rules for a game. They always win. But Treadgold is pretty confident that he's going to do well no matter what. And this is you know, because of his chaotic neutralness. It's a good alignment in a world like this, I suppose. The party is thinning out now, and we go catch up with Donovan, whom we, we haven't actually talked about yet in this episode. So I'll just remind listeners that Donovan is the European sales dude for United Services Corporation. And Donovan has been watching the war on TV and proclaims that their side is winning because they haven't given up an inch of ground yet. And of course, as Peters points out, they're supposed to be attacking. They're the offense in this battle. So maybe that assessment is not quite right. But it's at this moment that the anxiety that Peters has been feeling all night really comes out. And he suggests that he and Donovan and Treadgold maybe shouldn't be drinking martinis and watching this war on a TV in Europe. Maybe they should go to America and actually fight for their cause. And something that's interesting here, of course, is that Treadgold isn't an American. So it's clear that for Peters, his side that he wants to go fight for is not America, but it's corporate capitalism. But Treadgold doesn't want anything to do with this, and, and not because he isn't American, but because he isn't on the side of the old regime. He's on his own side, and he knows that the only way to survive a revolution is to not work for the old regime. And Peters's epiphany continues here as he realizes that, and, and really this is something Treadgold had suggested earlier, he realizes that corporations aren't really interested in profit, even though that's what he'd been taught in business school. Profits above a certain point really just mean that corporations are taking from each other, which is counterproductive for the owner class. And now he realizes that the whole system is just about maintaining the status quo. It's about ensuring that the current owner class keeps on being the owner class indefinitely, forever and ever. It's about oppression. Yeah, I love this bit, this kind of conclusion to the conversation that Treadgold and Peters had earlier. You're absolutely right in Wolf's assessment here and Peters' understanding that the point of all of this network, this economy, is that it continues, not that any one company upsets another company unless it can do so without disrupting the whole economy. And as a result, there's a sort of honor amongst thieves of this kind of managerial class. And it's uh, it's kind of a great epiphany. It's a great moment in the story, but Peters realizes it too late. Yeah, we're nearing the end of the story now, and the, the party is over. And, and Peters needs to get to work uh, communicating with other corporations about how the battle is going. And once he's alone with the vidlink, though, Peters actually calls up the Library of Congress and talks there with a young librarian, and she's very happy to help. But when she realizes that Peters is highly placed in United Services Corporation, she just asks him for money. The staff at the Library of Congress have not been paid in months, and in fact, 
most people have left because they're not getting paid to show up there anymore. But she's heard that the employees at the Pentagon are now just being paid directly by United Services Corporation since the government itself doesn't have any money anymore. So maybe, you know, she also could get a paycheck. Yeah, this is crazy. I mean, the government here has been defunded ostensibly by corporate maneuvering and passing of laws and subverting the reasons why government exists to support citizens and existing for the citizens of the nation. I mean, a corporation doesn't exist for its employees. Uh, that That's kind of the explicit message of this story. Governments exist for the citizens and it's by the citizens that, uh, you know, our governments rule, at least in, in American ideology. And now these corporations are running out of money and the government needs the corporations to bail them out. The corporations need the government to bail them out and they have to go abroad and mix all of these interests and get all of this other modes of capital in order to keep everything running. And I think Wolf is really concerned about the outcome of this type of game. And Peters agrees to help her. He's going to just make her an employee of the Department of Defense in some way, which then is going to mean that she'll actually really just be an employee of United Services Corporation. This is just a power that he has as the executive assistant. And it seems really clear that this is within the purview of what they're doing is sort of trying to take over as much of the functioning of government as possible, even the Library of Congress. But what Peters is really calling about is he's looking for a tape about recent American history. He wants to know what has happened to his country in the last 30 years. And it turns out that lots of people have been calling with the same request. So the librarians already got this tape ready to go for him. And so on his screen appears the frozen image of an astronaut. Uh, and because the image isn't moving, Peters asks if this is the beginning or the end. And this is a metaphor. We don't get an answer, but I think this question is going to be a fun one to try to answer ourselves in the discussion. Peters has to hang up pretty quickly. He doesn't actually get to really watch this video because he has to talk with a guy named Berglund who works for a, a holding company, but it, it doesn't really amount to much. And Cleo Morris, the, the secretary, we also haven't talked about her in this episode yet. She comes in with a pair of drinks. Cleo and Peters talk candidly about their chances of winning the war. Cleo no longer believes that they can, and Peters doesn't really think that they can either, but he feels that he's trapped. He, he doesn't know what else he could go do, and he also doesn't understand how they've lost the war, right? The biggest corporations in the world with all the best people. How could this have happened? Cleo gets it. She feels like she understands how this has transpired, and she uses Berglund's holding company as an example. One of their biggest holdings is a pulpwood farm in Georgia. And of course, the people at the holding firm don't know anything about lumber or trees, but they know about prices and they know how to keep records, right? They know how to read spreadsheets and how to keep them. And the sort of people who are good at spreadsheets are the sort of people who never get so bored by them that they get careless. And higher up, it requires people who know when they should go along with what politicians want and, and when they should challenge politicians, how to sort of ride the, the wave of politics in order to keep existing even through political change. And the corporations were really good at this sort of thing, Cleo says. But what they don't have is initiative and creativity and guts. Yeah, I love Cleo's speech here at the end of the story. She points out the real relationship between uh, place, ability for a business to be sustainable, people who know when to push and when to pull, people who are kind of steady in maintaining the status quo in a way that benefits both a people and a place at a 
particular time where this idea is business is for all of the shareholders, all of the stakeholders in the business, the employees, the employers, of course, the shareholders as well, but also the communities where these businesses do their work. This is a this is an idea of business that is under attack in the 1970s as the Cold War is ramping up and people are fearing socialism, that radical capitalism in this sense where a person's identity can't be caught up in a place and a time and uh, a labor is under threat in a strange way uh, because a person should just be maximizing value for the shareholders. I really like and appreciate Cleo's speech here, and I think Wolf is doing an awful lot to point out, as I said, the value of businesses to people and places in time instead of in this bizarre, abstract world we've come to. And there is a crazy juxtaposition to this speech because the whole time this conversation has been going on, Peters has been slowly putting the moves on Cleo and he's he's moved to sit next to her. And now that she's done explaining why the corporations are going to lose this war, he places a hand on her thigh and he says that the corporations just might still be able to win the war if they can change things just a little bit. At those words... Cleo explodes. She explodes just like the Peace Volunteers did in Detroit. Her body blossoms afire, and Peter's body is blasted into the next room, naked and burning. And his, his comrades pour tepid water on him. It's the, the detritus from the ice buckets that kept the booze cold at the party. But the effort is totally in vain, and Peter's dies. And that's the end of the story. And this was a very sudden and a very surprising end, for, for me at least. I want to point something out before we close out this episode, which we'll pick right back up in the discussion, which is it is implied that Peters and Cleo have sex before she explodes. And I want to start there in the discussion. But that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple Forum. Let us know what you thought of this section of Hour of Trust. Let us know if you can point out things that we missed or things that you think are really important uh, that we did not point out in this recap, though hopefully we'll get to it in the discussion. Yeah, and we've also just released our monthly Patreon episode. This one is uh, Valerie and I talking about the Star Trek, the original series episode, Dagger of the Mind, which is a really great episode about a uh, Federation penal colony. It's a, it's a classic episode. We had a lot of fun with it. And if you want to check that out, all you have to do is join us on Patreon and you'll get immediate access to it and also about three dozen other exclusive episodes. So next time we will be back with a discussion episode for this novella. And there is a lot on the list. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>